What a great song to start today, uh, today's Nature's Edge with. Welcome, my friends. This is Dale Stewart, and you are tuned to Nature's Edge. I also want to mention to you, we have a new uh, channel, the Nature's Edge channel. It's on uh, TuneIn.com, and then you can click on Nature's Edge, or you can go to to the TuneIn app and uh, and download it and listen to my show uh, anytime 24-7. Um, many of you know that I just returned from um, spending 14 days in uh, in the bayous and uh, uh, canals and wetlands of South Louisiana, and it was quite a quite a treat for me. A uh, uh, that's home, and uh, I haven't been down in that part of the wetlands in a long time. And it was interesting to go back down, uh, camp out in the uh, in the marsh, and uh, Learn a little bit about what's going on down there with the coastal erosion and the uh, saltwater intrusion. Uh, got to see uh, some areas that, uh, when I was growing up, we used to go fish and camp on some islands down there, and sadly those islands now have disappeared. Um, in the coming weeks, I'm going to have a uh, a radio documentary about my trip down there, and you're going to hear uh, an interview with a number of the people who make uh, their home and livelihood in the wetlands, and uh, it's going away. Um, some some area the size of Rhode Island uh, in South Louisiana is now underwater, uh, and that has happened uh, literally within our lifetime, and we're going to uh, look at the reasons and discuss uh, what I found out while I was down there and uh, hope that you will... Uh, Hope that you'll tune into that and listen, and, and we're going to be discussing that a great deal more in the in the very near future. I have a uh, a very special guest with me today on Nature's Edge, uh, Mr. Tim Owen. Uh, Tim is the executive officer at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, the National Climactic Data Center, uh, located here in Asheville, NCDC. Uh, Tim oversees the uh, cross center coordination and communications efforts. And over his 20-year career at NCDC, uh, Tim has worked on a variety of projects, including climate data validation, urban heat island research. Not sure what that is. We'll ask him. Uh, Climate normals generation, map-based data applications, assessment of socioeconomic information, and collaboration in in setting up uh, drought.gov. It's a web portal of the National Integrated Drought Information System. Uh, Tim is a graduate of UNC uh, Asheville in atmospheric sciences, and he also holds degrees from uh, Penn State in uh, meteorology and UNC Chapel Hill in uh, city and regional planning. Uh, Tim, welcome to Nature's Edge. Thanks a lot, Dale. Glad to be here. I am um, uh, obviously uh, kind of planned this out to go along with uh, returning from my trip to South Louisiana because obviously... Uh, some of the problems that uh, that I witnessed down there that are ongoing uh, do deal with climate. And uh, if you don't mind, we may uh, touch on that a little bit. Um, we've got about three minutes left in this segment. I, I'd like you, uh, Tim, just to kind of give us a brief overview of, of what is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and what is the National Climactic Data Center. Okay, Dale. Well, uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has been around since uh, 1970. Um, it has uh, combined both what we call the wet side and the dry side 
of uh, a lot of the science uh, that uh, is performed uh, in the biosphere in terms of data collection, observations. Um, we have fisheries, we have oceans, we have uh, research into the atmosphere. Uh, we have 13,000 employees uh, all over the country. We're one of the more distributed uh, agencies in the federal government because of uh, the weather service being in 120-plus locations um, and having fishery uh, responsibilities uh, over the oceans. And NCDC? Is, is yes, NCDC has a really interesting story here in Asheville. Uh, it started in 1951 officially, and it uh, came to Asheville for kind of a, an unusual reason. Uh, during World War II, the uh, federal government took over um, buildings across the country for different purposes. They took over the lovely Grove Arcade here in downtown Asheville, and they were going to use that for postal records. Well, that didn't work out. So after the war, um, weather tabulation units, uh, that is uh, centers where data was punched by hand, uh, were going to be consolidated, and basically the, the story is that uh, they were looking for a building big enough and strong enough to hold millions and millions of punch cards. And so the Grove Arcade fit the bill. That's, uh, that's quite a history. I, I did not know that the Grove Arcade was the original uh, uh, home of, of, uh, of the National Climactic Data Center, although it started out as, as something else. Um, you're listening to Nature's Edge, and I want to remind you again of the new Nature's Edge channel. Uh, you can go to TuneIn app, or you can go to TuneIn.com and click on Nature's Edge and listen to uh, listen to the show uh, 24/7. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk with Tim a little bit about the mission of of the uh, National Climactic Data Center, a little bit about climate monitoring, state of the uh, art, uh, uh, what's going on with our climate. We may even talk a little bit about global warming, um, something called temperature uncertainty, which I enjoy, uh, and historic, um, and all of the all of the things that they do uh, right here in Asheville, North Carolina. We shall return. Welcome back to Nature's Edge. This is Dale Stewart. My studio guest today is Tim Owen. Tim is the executive officer at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Climactic Data Center located in Asheville here in western North Carolina. Uh, we were just Tim was just giving us a a very brief overview of of NOAA and NCDC. And uh, now I'm gonna ask you a little bit what's the mission? Uh, Tim, what's, what's the mission of the um, of the National Climactic Data Center? Well, Dale, our mission can be really characterized in four words: uh, science, stewardship of information, services to the public, and architecture to hold it all together. Now, fundamentally, the Climate Data Center is an archive. It is a place where weather records, historical records of uh, environmental information, are brought together 
and kept for future generations. That's our fundamental mission. And the uh, uh, and, and on a daily basis, uh, you guys are collecting weather data, correct? Yes, that's From correct. Worldwide, that is correct. Yes, uh, and then and then. Uh, sending that data out not only to the citizens who may want to access it, but other government agencies, mm-hmm. uh, military, a- anyone else who has an interest in in, uh, uh, in climactic uh, data. That's right, Dale. And, and I was just going to say, I noticed y- you mentioned something that, that I use quite a bit, and that's uh, uh, the historic data that mm-hmm. you collect. Mm-hmm. I, I know before I started my journey to uh, to the wetlands of South Louisiana, and one of the things that I wanted to look at was the history of climactic data and, and look for, for change patterns uh, that also might have impacted what I was going to see down there. Mm-hmm. And I pull most of that information uh, from you guys. Yes, and we work hard to try to make it as useful to uh, the public as possible. You know, one of the things that is very popular uh, are the climate normals that we provide. Anybody who's watched uh, TV at night uh, and sees the weather almanac uh, gets a sense of climate perspectives. You know, what what are the temperatures compared to what they ought to be for this time of year? That's really an important uh, frame setting for for the public. That's uh, yeah, it, it it really is, and I I, I know even. Uh, um, you know, farmers around the country, uh, that, that's a, something that is very interesting to them that they're looking at as it relates to their crops and, and, uh, and, and other things. And I know uh, uh, that is part of, uh, f- of what you guys do. I know a lot of uh, uh, farmers, particularly in, in the Midwest and, and here in the Southeast, use that information. Sure. And so quality is an important objective in data. We, we work very hard. We have a lot of scientists that are world experts in taking the information that comes in and making the information uh, both useful and as accurate as possible. Tell me a little bit, uh, when we talk about climate monitoring, what, what does that really mean? And, and where, where does the data, how do you receive the data uh, that is stored there? So the data really comes in uh, pretty much in digital format now. Uh, you know, in the past, we used to get uh, mailings of uh, data from the weather service offices across the country. Um, now, we get a transmission every night uh, that digests over 7,000 stations. Uh, we also have a huge stream of modeling data. Uh, we have satellite data, radar data. Those are high-volume data sets that have tremendous amounts of information. And then... Uh, do you have just a bunch of men and women sitting there at computers then analyzing all of this as it comes in? Well, much much of what comes in is automatically processed into our computer systems and uh, placed into that safe environment, uh, our archive. From there, we do the scientific research. Well, I, I know we're in the middle of hurricane season. I mean, thank goodness we've, we've had a, uh, a pretty mild season, and obviously I was watching that very close being uh, down in the wetlands of, of Louisiana, but... Uh, you're also uh, involved with with hurricane predictions and 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 the information that is sent out to uh, various uh, meteorological uh, TV uh, announcers uh, on that. Correct. So what we do as a data center is help provide information to other partners in NOAA. There is in the National Weather Service part of NOAA. There is a National Centers for Environmental Prediction, and they have responsibility for hurricane prediction at the Hurricane Center in Miami. Uh, So we work closely with them to 
uh, provide uh, climate perspectives and support their mission. Do you do any predicting, or do you guys just furnish the data? Well, we usually um, uh, furnish the information. I, I joke with uh, family members whenever they ask me for a forecast that, um, you know, I, I've taken the safe route and uh, gotten into a part of the business where you look backwards and not forwards. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but that, uh, I said that tongue-in-cheek. Of course, we're looking at, you know, uh, future uh, scenarios and so forth as well. Yeah, and and I yeah I knew you were uh, kind of uh, saying that tongue in cheek, but I wanted to ask you too. Uh, um, people talk about the state of our climate all the time. What, yeah. what does that mean? Well, it's it's a framing. It's a it's a, cl- a climate perspectives framework. Uh, we provide a monthly uh, snapshot of where the country is compared to the normal conditions. We use sometimes uh, the period nineteen oh one to. Uh, 2010. Sometimes we use the normals period, which is a 30-year period. Whatever you use as a baseline, it's all about talking about how warm or cold are you compared to normal, how wet or dry are you compared to normal, and then some additional details on extreme events and so forth. So by saying that, you're saying that there is a normal? There is a normal. It's a a computed uh, value uh, over a period of time. So what kind of what we have been experiencing um, uh, this summer? I mean, I, I know uh, in South Louisiana during my journey down there, it was uh, very cool. I mean, it, it was in the eighties uh, uh, many days, which I was very thankful for because it also kept the uh, kept the mosquitoes down. Yeah. Um, but we seem to be experiencing a, a little cooler uh, than I, I guess what would be considered normal. Yes, it's uh, really an interesting time in terms of extremes. I mean, if you go to California, they're uh, very, very dry, exceptionally dry, and um, there's a lot of uh, warmth in the west. You know, the jet stream in the mid-latitudes where the United States is, it's kind of like a a snapping rope that uh, undulates up and down. And um, what we've seen in the last number of years is a tendency for that um, undulation, if you will, that up and down of the rope, to become kind of sticky, and um, that leads to extremes. And and this summer we're seeing extreme uh, dry and warm in the west and cool in the east. Well, does this have anything to do with, uh, and I might not pronounce this correct, uh, El Nino or the other one? La Nina. That's it. (laughs) Well, there there are what we call in, in the business teleconnections, that is, uh, warm temperatures in the ocean and the Pacific have implications for the Atlantic Basin, hurricane season, for the, uh, the amount of rain that occurs in Florida. Right now we're um, approaching a very mild El Nino, and so there's not a lot of strong connections to that at this point. So, so you, you do look at those, those things. And, then, and, and I have to ask, uh, you know, global warming. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was talking to a gentleman uh, just a few days ago down in the marsh, and, you know, it was, I think, 78 degrees or something early in the morning. And he says, uh, people keep saying we're getting warmer, this global warming thing, but I'm about to freeze to death down here in the bayou. <laughs> uh, talk a little about global warming. What What is it? What does it mean from, from your perspective? So fundamentally, global warming is uh, – uh, and a phenomenon where industrial emissions of primarily carbon dioxide into the atmosphere 
uh, yield um, increases in uh, water vapor in the atmosphere and uh, surface temperature increases, extreme precipitation increases. Uh, global warming in the aggregate is warming in the overall temperature of the planet. Uh, what we're really experiencing regionally and locally is global weirding, where you know you're having more extreme events, and uh, sometimes those events are on the cool side, are on the wet side, and and that is counter to what people uh, you know think warming really means. Yeah, I, I I think that's the the misconception, if you will, about about global warming. And is this um, how how predictable was what's going on now as it relates to these cooler temperatures that we're experiencing? Uh, um, it, it, was that something that you guys had sort of looked at in your modeling and and sort of saw coming? Well, you know, the day to day, the season to season. Um, is attributable in some areas but not in other areas in terms of the overall global warming. You know, we, we're watching the, um, the signal uh, amplify over time. There's no question about that. And, um, you know, the impacts in, um, are seen in the glacier, glacial retreat across the planet and um, the uh, increase in sea level uh, in, in many, many areas. So, so there, there are many challenges to, um, you know, telling what is 100% attributable to, to what you would call global warming. Well, obviously, the, the coastal erosion that I was witnessing in South Louisiana and, and even the saltwater intrusion in, into the freshwater, um, certainly uh, uh, the ocean uh, rising uh, is having some effect on that uh, on that area. Would sure. you agree? I mean, yeah, absolutely, Dale. And, and, and really, the ocean warming is a, an artifact of melting of, of ice, but it's also thermal expansion of the oceans from just the general warming um, across uh, across the globe. So thermal expansion is really just the water level going up. Yes, on, on mm-hmm. the bank, if if you will. So, That's right. And and that. Uh, is that a result of of, um, uh, of global warming, or is that a, is there more to it than that? Well, I, th- I think fundamentally that that particular piece is uh, an artifact of a warming planet. That you, you're going to see the, the oceans begin to to expand because they are uh, fundamentally warmer. By the way, they're also fundamentally more um, acidic because yes. they're absorbing that carbon. About a quarter of all of the carbon dioxide released in the planet is being absorbed into the oceans. Uh, uh, through our carbonic acid, and it's causing the pH of the ocean uh, to go down, and and that obviously um, uh, impacts uh, nature and what what we're seeing in in our oceans today, uh, and in, and in that in that rise. Uh, I'm talking to uh, Tim Owing, uh, who is the executive officer of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and I do want to remind my listeners that you can tune into the Nature's Edge channel. Uh, it, there's a TuneIn app, and there's also you can go to TuneIn.com and click on Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart, and you will be able to hear my show any place, any time. You're listening to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart, and we shall return shortly.
This is Dale Stewart, and you are listening to Nature's Edge. I want to remind you that we also have a Nature's Edge channel now. It's on uh, TuneIn.com, and you can go there and click on Nature's Edge. There's also a uh, a TuneIn app, and you can listen to us 24-7 at your convenience. We are going to continue our discussion with... uh, Tim Owen. Tim is uh, executive officer at the National Oceanic and Administration. Can't even talk anymore. Been in the bayou too long. Listen to Cajuns. Um, he's executive officer at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Climatic Data, Data Center, uh, located here in Asheville in Western North Carolina. And Tim, we were talking a little bit about uh, global warming and and things like that. And I want to talk to you just a little bit about uh, a number of other things, but but one of them is something called temperature uncertainty. Okay. Um, could, you, could you explain what that is to us? Sure, sure. Anytime you have uh, data, you have uh, some uncertainty associated with the way the data is collected. Um, for example, if you have um, a, a station, a precip gauge, let's say, in your yard, and over the years, a uh, big old apple tree grows over it. Well, uh, when the tree gets big, it's not the same measurement as when the tree was small. So we have a challenge of um, taking the information and um, using statistical techniques or information about the data that people have collected. Hey, I've got a tree that's grown um, to sort out uh, what the uh, temperature or precipitation value should be accurately. Are you using um, uh, mathematical algorithms to to, uh, to develop uh, models that, that take that uncertainty into uh, into account? Absolutely. And uh, uh, I would I would think that was what what was doing. So that that explains temperature uncertainty to me. I'm going to talk about something that uh, that I uh, ran across on on the website a little bit, and it's. Uh, uh, Paleo uh, climatology or, or paleo, paleo climate uh, information. You guys, uh, are, I guess, are one of the few places that really have that information. And you want to explain to people what that is? Sure, Dale. Uh, paleo climate information is information uh, based on what we call proxy information. Instead of directly measuring temperature, for example, uh, you can take tree rings. People are familiar with, uh, you know, if, if the tree ring is wide, that means it was a a very abundant wet year, and if it's narrow, it's a very dry year. So we can take that information and we can run back uh, before we had instruments. Uh, Typically in the United States and in um, Europe and other parts of the industrialized world, the temperature and precip records only go back to the mid-19th century. So to go be before that, you've got to go to these other things. One of the... I know many years ago, uh, back in the 80s, I was actually involved in an expedition in Greenland. And I think this is similar. We were actually involved with ice coring. Uh, uh, I was actually working with a group from the University of Fairbanks at the mm-hmm. time. And it, it was a similar process because I remember slicing it and looking at it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, in, in that case, uh, the data you're collecting is uh, a direct measure because you're collecting air bubble information. So you're actually getting little pieces of atmosphere from up to a hundred thousand years ago. Yeah, that and that was amazing, uh, amazing work for me. I was I was just involved with sort of the remote logistics operation of mm-hmm. that, but I did uh, spend some time uh, watching them drill and yep. and pull that up and. 
take those little slices. And, and again, I do remember that they were looking for those little bubbles of, of air, and they were actually, uh, they weren't doing it there, but they were sending this back to scientists uh, all over the world, and they were actually pulling, able to pull information and giving us some idea of, of the climate uh, thousands and millions of years ago in some instances. And certainly those bubbles are very important for us to set, again, the climate perspective of what CO2 levels were back then and what they are now. Yeah, that, that was amazing, amazing stuff. And I, I, I just, when you mentioned uh, the paleo, uh, that, that kind of reminded me of that, of that story and of doing that. So this, this is tied in, I guess, to the historical climate data? Sure, absolutely. We have, you know, historical data of many, many different types. Uh, you know, certainly we even use diaries from the early um, 19th century, late 18th century. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, many of our founding fathers kept diaries that uh, noted the weather conditions. And is all of that data available? Uh, uh... Yes, Um Almost uh, all of our surface data collection is available online at ncdc.noaa.gov. We also have, uh, as you mentioned at the start of the um, show, drought.gov, which focuses on drought conditions in the U.S. And then we have climate.gov, which uh, provides a uh, kind of a perspective uh, with news stories and educational materials um, on, on the state of the climate. And, and and all of those, uh, as an explorer, I can tell you how important that information is to me. Um, I always look at weather before I go somewhere, and I, I was actually in a in a meeting um, uh, several months ago with a with a scientist uh, who was from a university uh, who was actually going to Southeast Asia, and he had all everything well planned. He had great equipment and and everything else, and I happened to. Uh, Notice when he was going to travel, and I asked him if he had looked at the weather data uh, for that period. And he said, well, no. I said, well, that's the start of monsoon. And he was amazed uh, that that was uh, that time. But he was fixing to spend um, several hundred thousand dollars on a trip that uh, was probably not going to give him the outcome he needed. And and really all he would have had to done was uh, check with you guys mm-hmm. and, and looked at that. Well, certainly, you know, there's the, the climate uh, information, what uh, is a wet season versus a dry season. But there's also looking ahead to the future. Uh, if, if you're an um, infrastructure builder, you need to prepare for the conditions that are going to occur 50 years from now. So how can we as a, a science agency support the public in that regard, too? Tim, I, how, how far in advance, uh, and maybe, maybe – uh, Comfortable is not the word, but how far in, in the future uh, do you look at, at weather and weather patterns and climate and that sort of thing? Well, on the predicting side of NOAA, there's a forecast uh, out to 10 days. Uh, then there are intermediate forecasts of 6 to 10 days to 2 weeks. And then there are seasonal forecasts after that, uh, one month to three months. And then after that, you begin to look at, um, you know, different teleconnections like I was talking about earlier um, assessment information. Um, so our predictive power is diminished over time because of um, uncertainty in um, in nonlinearity. Lon- I'm sorry, nonlinearity in the system. I haven't been to Cajun country. I have no excuse. <laughs> uh, it happens that. Well, one thing uh, you, you were talking about that. I mean, nature is not linear. That's right. And that's one thing that uh, that we've certainly learned over over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And people that try to make it linear uh, don't turn out so well. Yeah. 
but uh, these predictions are important again, not only to uh, people like me and to the to the agriculture and farmer farmers, but uh, I, know, I know the U.S. Forest Service and Department of the Interior look at this to determine um, uh, burn seasons and and uh, what uh, and the incidence uh, of, of wildfires occurring sure. in, in given periods of time. So I, I think weather and weather predicting is is something that really impacts us every day, but we don't think about it too much other than at the, at the news hour. Right, and if you think about adaptation um, to respond to climate and its impacts, um, you really have to start thinking about risk and, and how do you manage risk. And, and there's a huge industry. The reinsurance industry is a big group that's looking at the information and trying to make assessments on whether they want to cover, say, someone who lives on the beach in Florida or not. Yeah, and, and it's not all just about managing the risk. It's also about mitigating. Uh, we know something's going to happen, so what can we do to, to limit the, the right. impact or the effect that mm-hmm. that has? And, and so that, that's why that, that future predicting uh, models are, are so important. Absolutely. Uh, as you said, not just to uh, uh, developers and, and uh, fishermen and agriculture people and, and forests, but to, but to all of us. You're listening to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart, and we're talking to Mr. Tom Oyn, Executive Officer at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Climactic Data Center. Neither one of us can talk today, and we will return. This is Dale Stewart, and you're listening to Nature's Edge. I uh, want to remind you one more time to tune in to the new Nature's Edge channel. It's uh, available on TuneIn.com or the TuneIn app, and you can listen to the show 24-7 at your convenience. Just click on Nature's Edge. We've been spending uh, some time with uh, Tim Owen today, Tim, uh, Executive Officer at, uh, at NOAA and also uh, the uh, National Climactic Data Center located in, in uh, Asheville in western North Carolina. And we've talked about a lot of things. And, Tim, I, I couldn't let you leave here unless I ask you about greenhouse gases. Sure, sure, Dale. Well, you know, the greenhouse gases are on the increase, um, both across the board and specifically with CO2. We this spring uh, saw some measurements uh, pushing just above that uh, 400 parts per million threshold, uh, which is significant. Uh, is that the first time yes. you've seen that? Mm-hmm. That is the first time we have seen that. And and what is the greenhouse effect? Is that what that is about? Or? Well, you know, the greenhouse effect um, was first proposed back in the late 19th century as basically akin to a greenhouse where incoming uh, solar radiation is uh, trapped, if you will, uh, when the, the, the radiation is re-emitted from the surface of the Earth, um, not all of it goes back to space. Does that have, and, and does that uh, have something to do with the ozone hole that was a, a lot of discussion about a number of years ago? No, no, no. Or is that a different animal? That's a different animal. Um, but it does propose, you know, the, the solution to the ozone hole International agreement uh, is a roadmap for how we pers- prospectively could uh, have a policy solution to uh, the global warming issue. 
Is there, and, and again, this, this was a question I was asked not long ago, and I didn't know the answer to it, but the uh, the ozone hole, is, is that a uh, – um, is that fall in your world, I mean, of, of climate, or is that uh, something else? Well, certainly the conditions that uh, allow an ozone hole to form over Antarctica are certainly uh, driven by climate, by the, the wind patterns over – uh, the howling um, latitudes uh, around Antarctica. Are we seeing an increase in the greenhouse gases uh, on a on a, a steady uh, incline? Yes, it's, it's a very steady uh, incline. There is uh, uh, one of the fam- most famous um, charts in science is the Keeling curve, which shows the uh, CO2 increases since the late 1950s. And what you see is an annual cycle up and down uh, by a few parts per million as the northern hemisphere breathes, uh, as the vegetation in the northern hemisphere comes and goes, the CO2 uptake changes by you know, three to five parts per million. But the general trend has been up, up, up uh, consistently over that period of time. And, Tim, do you, do, do you look at, uh, in the data, do you look at what percentage of that could be considered man-made, and what percentage of that is naturally occurring? So this is a real point of uh, great debate. Uh, Certainly, we have been able to use uh, models to differentiate between contributions that are um, made by industrial uh, emissions primarily versus what would happen in a natural state. And you do see a divergence uh, from the mid-20th century forward in other words, we're running the models back uh, 150 years, and there's matching uh, signals, and then there's a divergence um, between the two. That's so, significant. So, so it is significant as you yes. as you've looked at the looked at the history of that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about something a lot of people are familiar with, and that's uh, weather maps and charts that uh, we all see on TV and and things like that. Uh, um, how how what role does the uh, Climactic Data Center play in those maps and charts that, that we see on our weather reports? Well, certainly when a, a meteorologist stands up and gives a forecast, uh, they are very interested in um, assessing whether there are extremes uh, to cold or hot or to wet or dry, uh, whether an event uh, is uh, historic. Uh, when Superstorm Sandy came um, into New Jersey and uh, the Northeast, certainly that was uh, historic, and th- we provide that framework for them to compare historic events against. So the the uh, so they're pulling that data from you guys that that we're seeing in the afternoons and and uh, at night and well twenty four seven now on some of the uh, on some of the channels uh, yeah. out there. Um, what about storm data? Um, I, 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 you're also collecting that on a, uh, both his, historically and uh, and and looking at it uh, future, correct? Yes, we work very very closely with the National Weather Service to make sure that as their meteorologists go out in the field and assess storm damage, that information is captured in our archive. Very important um, for us to assess trends of extremes. For example, intensities of tornadoes, um, hail reports are, are very uh, important that we get. Um, cooperation from the Weather Service, which in turn uh, leads to uh, citizen involvement. And and citizens, again, uh, you gave the website a few minutes ago, but, but people that really want to learn more about uh, 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 the weather charts, the weather climate, uh, the historical data, all of the, all of the uh, services that uh, 
that are offered. Uh, could you give that the sure. site again? It's um, ncdc.noaa.gov, and then there's drought.gov for drought and climate.gov for general climate information. Could you just quickly, uh, we've got about three minutes left here, uh, could we talk a little bit about uh, climate models? Because I know we've, you've mentioned the word modeling a, a lot throughout the show. And could you, could you kind of give us a, a layman's uh, description of what a climate model is and, and sort of uh, how they're useful? Sure. You know, basically, we have um, literally thousands, tens of thousands of observations that are, that are made on a daily to monthly basis. These include people going out and measuring precipitation in their backyard to uh, weather balloons that, that take a profile of the uh, conditions uh, throughout the atmosphere to satellite information, radar information. All of that stuff is aggregated using supercomputers to put into a what we call a model, which is uh, we have certain ways of setting that model up to represent reality as best we can. And quite frankly, over the last uh, 70 years, Advances in computing have often been tied very closely to uh, the weather meteorological needs uh, to, to be able to crunch all that information. Obviously, the technology is advancing to the point where we can really um, have a very, very fine, uh, finely tuned model system that uh, represents uh, the atmospheric conditions very closely. And, and, the, uh, and are you modeling the planet? Well, there are uh, different kinds of models, uh, of course. There are the, the meteorological models that yes. are usually tuned to a hemisphere. Uh, there are climate models, which are not as resolute, but uh, look at the in, an entire Earth over a period of time. So you, you can look at the movement of weather patterns around the globe as well as uh, regionally and, and locally. Uh, yes, that's right. And, and that's where the challenge is for the future is uh, working with more regionally tuned models to uh, improve weather forecasting That's uh, and extend the forecasting out you know, beyond uh, 10 days to 14 days. Tim, how many people are at the uh, National Climactic Data Center? Well, our organization has about 300 employees, um, and we're located uh, not just in western North Carolina, but also in um, a half a dozen other states uh, with representatives. And is their background primarily meteorology, or is it computer science, or is it a combination of all of the above? Well, it's a combination of all of the above, Dale. I um, mean, I, I just I visualize a bunch of little geeks sitting around in front of computers. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, you see uh, two groups of people. You see the lawyers in suits going one way, and you see people in plaid going the other, going way. The other way. We're the plaid group. Yeah. Uh, guys, you've been listening to uh, to Nature's Edge, and, and we, uh, we have... Uh, had uh, Tim Owen with us, and, and Tim, I really uh, appreciate you taking the time out of uh, out of your very busy schedule to come uh, spend a little time with us here on, on Nature's Edge. And I want to remind my uh, fans one more time that we now have the Nature's Edge channel. Go to TuneIn.com, click on Nature's Edge, and you can listen to us 24-7. This is Dale Stewart, and until next time, I will see you in the wild. Oh,